Hey, folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore stories of spirituality, identity, and culture from Latinx perspectives. My name is Taylor Amaj. I'm an author and editor, and I'm Puerto Rican. Encuentros Latinx is wrapping up yet another wonderful year with Posadas Navideñas on December 15th at 5 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Central, and 2 p.m. Pacific. Join us yet again on Zoom for music and fellowship. There is a very simple registration form that you can fill out and get the invite link that way. It should be a great time. Last year's service was super great, and this year's is also bound to be super great. I have neglected to clearly mention in the past on this podcast that we now have a video feed sometimes. You can find some video episodes of Encuentros Latinx and other videos of Encuentros Latinx work that isn't podcast related on the United Church of Christ YouTube channel. So if you go to YouTube, go find the UCC's YouTube channel and click on it. You'll see a playlist called Encuentros Latinx that has all of our stuff, all of our video stuff there. So you can go check all that out, share it around, and enjoy that content. And you might especially want to keep that in mind because there will be a video episode of today's episode, which is particularly important because my guest is sharing a video clip from his latest documentary. So you will definitely want to be able to check that out. And who is this guest? It is none other than Storm Miguel Flores, the man behind all of the editing of every Encuentros Latinx episode. He has so much to share about his experience with gender and sexuality, growing up in a time period and a culture where deviation was just not accepted. Yet he still found people who shaped him and helped him to grow into these identities that break binaries. He also tells us about his film work and all of the other creative stuff that he does. So again, you'll absolutely want to stick around to the end and go check out the video on YouTube. He does so many amazing things, and it is fantastic to get to present him to you all in a much more fuller way. And so now, without any further delay, let's get right into our last Encuentro of 2021. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Can you introduce yourself by giving us your name and pronouns? Thanks so much, Taylor. I am Storm Miguel Flores, and my pronouns are he, him. And we are very excited to have you on the show in particular because regular listeners will know that you are our editor for the podcast. So uh, we definitely love to finally uh, see your face and and hear your story. Um, So what what country, countries uh, do you and your family come from? So I come from the United States. I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, my mom's family is from New Mexico. If you ask them, you know, how long, have we, how long have we been in New Mexico? They just say we've just always been here. Uh, so they're, you know, 
it's a very kind of complicated in New Mexico because people, some pe- people identify in a lot of different ways. You know, Hispanic is kind of the more conservative way that people identify. And this kind of how we've identified on my mom's side over the years. Uh, but, you know, you know, they've been there forever. They've been, they're from a place, a county called Socorro County, which is, um, and then San Acacia is where my, my mom was born. And that's where the Pueblo Indians are kind of all through throughout New Mexico and along the Rio Grande. And uh, so, you know, it's just a very kind of, it's a very shrouded history. I like to think of, I like to think of it as shrouded because I think at some point people had to kind of go into hiding in a way. They kind of had to like, I try to identify as Hispanic or Spanish to not, um, you know, to get along better, maybe to not uh, be targeted in certain ways and enslaved actually in New Mexico as well. So uh, who knows, though, that history is very shrouded. And then on my dad's side, his family's from from Mexico. uh, And he and his other siblings were born in Roswell, New Mexico. But his uh, parents were born in Mexico somewhere, maybe Zacatecas around there, looking with the little bits uh, we can piece together. Uh, His father came to the United States in the early 1900s, and then soon after, his mom came with his older siblings. And um, so I think there were just three older siblings and then the rest of the, the rest of them were born in the United States. Hmm. That is definitely a quite a tapestry um, as <laughs> so many of our folks, you know, have. So what is a good memory that you have of this, this culture, these areas that you mm-hmm. were really raised in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I could talk forever about this, and so I'll I'll try to just focus it on on my dad's side, uh, because it was an, always an event when we got together with my Roswell relatives, whether we were visiting them or they were visiting us. Uh, it was either you know because of an event, some party, or, or some like uh, event like a wedding or a funeral or a graduation, and then sometimes just because someone was in town. Um, but if someone was in town, there was going to be a big dinner. And all the cousins were going to get together and all the aunties and uncles. Um, and there was going to be dinner. And then afterwards, the adults were going to play poker and drink. And the kids were going to run off and do whatever we felt like doing uh, as long as it was somewhere as long as it was somewhere on the property or at least on the street. And so those are really fun memories for me because I have a lot of cousins. Let me just say I have 57 first cousins wow. um, combined, my mom and dad's side, most of them on my dad's side. And so, you know, and, and I'm the youngest of like all my first cousins, just about, especially on my dad's side, the absolute youngest. So all of my, my first cousins were much, were a lot older than I was. So they're a lot, they're kind of like my aunties and uncles. They were at the the adult table. So I was brought up with their kids with my, like, I guess, second cousins. And so me and all my cousins, second cousins would go run around and do whatever my, and my brother too. And um, we would just get to go play. And, and the older cousins would take care of the younger ones and make sure that we were safe, but also like boss us around and tell us what we were going to play. And, you know, we'd make haunted houses for each other or we'd go play kick the can or whatever we did. But it was just like a ton of kids getting to just play at night, you know, and do whatever we wanted. And then eventually sometimes we'd make it back to where the adults were over at the table where they're playing poker and end up in somebody's lap and, you know, and they would always end up singing at some point late in the night. They'd always end up singing rancheras and crying and laughing. And um, it's just, you know, it all, it, it's just a very fond memory. It doesn't really happen anymore in my family. So it's mm-hmm. really cherished because that, 
that's a, that's a thing that I think a lot of us really miss and look back on. Um, and, you know, over time, you know, everybody moves, everybody grows up and kind of spreads apart. So, um, but yeah, th- that, those are some of the most cherished memories for me. That's awesome. I, I'm very focused on 57 cousins. That is <laughs> my, my family is, I mean, it's not that big. Both of my parents each have two other siblings. And so I had a, you know, fair amount of first cousins, but, um, I mean, even, even then it just like our family gatherings were never quite that huge. I mean, that's, that, and that's just the cousins. Then you have everybody's like parent, like you probably, you just, your family, I feel like could establish an entire small town. <laughs> probably, I, <laughs> I mean, if Ros- I'm thinking Roswell. about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there are so, well, and again, like I said, it was my mom and dad's side, but yeah, those are just my first cousins. And I grew mm-hmm. up with my second cousins and there were a ton of them and there's more than, I mean, more than I could count. So I don't know how many second cousins I have, but that's who I grew up with. <laughs> like my, my godmother is my first cousin, mm-hmm. you know, um, and her oldest daughter is older than I am. And, mm-hmm. you know, so like her, her kids are like my, my, they were like my siblings growing up, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, it's a, it's a very large family. Mm-hmm. So this term Latinx, the whole title of the podcast and this this term that has emerged in recent years, what is your experience of it? Is it a term that you really claim and embrace? Is it something that you struggle with? And, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be that much of a dichotomy. There, there can be a, a range for it, but because it's you know, such a new and evolving term, what kind of, what is your, um, your sense of that? Sure. Yeah. Um, I don't struggle with it and Mm -hmm. I understand why some people do. I understand why there's, uh, I don't know if the word is, why there's, there's disagreement about it. Let's say, Mm -hmm. um, I came out as trans in the early two thousands and at that point, we were having evolving language, mm-hmm. you know, around gender and Latinx. A lot, a, a lot, a piece of that is around um, creating a gender, degenderizing, or de kind of binary, mm-hmm. binaryizing. I don't know, right, that's right. Right. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, the the very uh, gendered language, right? And so for me, it's something that I'm very used to. Uh, when I came out, we were looking at pronouns, you know, what are the pronouns we're going to use? Some people were using like Z and Sir pronouns. Mm-hmm. And we were like trying to incorporate that into our language. They, them was actually being used at the time. I didn't identify as they, them, even though I was genderqueer at the time. But it felt, for me, it felt too vague. And even mm-hmm. though I felt genderqueer, I didn't, I felt like my gender was more, felt more kind of, um, I don't know, more definite in some way, even mm-hmm. though it, it was non-binary in the sense mm-hmm. of genderqueer is the word we used. So, you know, he is my kind of, it's just default for lack of a better pronoun, honestly. Mm-hmm. But um, moving then to Latinx, before Latinx, before I saw Latinx, I saw Latin, Latin with the ampersand at the end. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and that was another way of like um, making it, or ah, it was kind of using mm-hmm. both both genders, which was a thing that you know I also was used to doing back in the day. I was when I wrote about myself, I used s slash he, and 
So it was like she, it was a, it was a combination of she and he. Mm-hmm. And so I saw Latino ah, as that as well. And so I used mm-hmm. that for a while. That made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, growing up, I was really Latino. Latina was not a word we used mm-hmm. to describe ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I mentioned my mom's family, maybe like more identifies as, as like Hispanic, but, um, you know, my cousins who were younger than, you know, the, well, my cousins who were older than I was, um, but of a younger generation that were using Hispanic, were using Chicano. Mm-hmm. And so that was something I identified with. Chicano is something I always, along the line, identified with. Um, mm-hmm. So when Latino, Latina was being used, I was using that because it made some sense. It was a way of relating to other people and placing myself. And so I use, uh, you know, I used Latinx for a while when we started using the X. That made sense. But then I realized, you know what, I feel more like Chicanex is more mm-hmm. what I'm going to use, Chicanex. Mm-hmm. And so I used that for a while. But then I started to hear about how, like, in the spoken language, X doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. And so, and I'm sure you've heard this talked about, mm-hmm. and that it, the E makes more sense, Chicane, mm-hmm. Latine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that I really identify that with. That makes so much sense to me. And so that's where I'm at. I'm with Chicane, but that's a personal mm-hmm. choice. Like I'm really for people using Latinx, Latine, mm-hmm. however feels right for them in, um, you know, the ways that they identify personally and the ways that they kind of see language and feel like using language. Um, you know, when I was, I was taking, I'm not fluid. Spanish speaker. I've heard you talk about this. I think we have similar yeah. kind of histories and complications yeah. with not speaking uh, one colonized <laughs> colonizer's <laughs> language over another. Yeah. But um, I remember I was taking Spanish lessons. I was taking uh, like a, I had a tutor and I was trying to to learn Spanish and she wanted me to to pick my Spanish name. And so mm-hmm. Storm is my first name. Mm-hmm. And so you know Tormenta is storm that's what my my name means like it's more mm-hmm. in alignment with a storm with weather tormento i believe was torment mm-hmm. and so neither of those like i didn't want to be with an a at the end of my name right, right? and i also did not want to identify as torment right <laughs> so i said okay how about tormente and mm-hmm. i didn't even know at that time about the e being used to mm-hmm. kind of degenderize and the spanish teacher who was queer was just like nope that's not a word Tormente mm. is not a word. You can't use it. And I was like, but it's a name. You know, we make up names all the time. It feels more right to me. It feels like a way of incorporating both aspects of the Spanish version of storm. Mm-hmm. And she just refused to acknowledge it. She refused mm-hmm. to call me Tormente. I felt kind of silly for suggesting it or feeling strongly about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so when I started to hear the E, Latina, Chicana, I was like, thank you. That is, that's what I've been trying to do mm-hmm. <laughs> because of my gender. And so, yeah, that's, that's how I feel about it. I feel very uh, comfortable with it. And um, I use the E more than the X mm-hmm. and I use Chicano, Chicana, Chicane more than Latina, Latino, Latina to describe myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really, that's really interesting. And, and I think it's also great to, uh, to hear the specificity of uh, Chicano, Chicana, Chicanex, because that is like, that is something that is very particular to like a region and and experience uh, compared to some of the other terms that we have in our larger community. I remember um, there was one, some case or other that about a year or so ago, I kept seeing these cases of like white people who were pretending to be Latinx 
and got caught in their grift. And there was this one person who whose grift was specifically like saying that that she was Chicana and like like using that such a specific term and um and but like using it in clearly a wrong way as one of many things that sort of indicated like this person is not actually like of of the culture uh like it's one thing to like grift that you know pretend you're you're latinx but like you're you're choosing a specific like subset and you're also you know doing it wrong i think that was also that might have also been a case though too where um it was like a professor in a university and by uh, assuming or pretending this identity got certain uh, positions or certain like attention mm. academically or something like that. And what the only thing that disturbed me a little bit about that story though, was that apparently her friends and colleagues, I don't know how it is that they suspected that she was lying about her identity, but they suspected she was lying about her identity and then started asking like her personal friends and family and all that. And and I get it. But also there are some of us who like assimilate so well into like into whiteness where, you know, our identity that's real could be like questioned in the same way. And so I, I was I had a moment of like thinking about that happening to me if people suddenly decided that I was faking and they started asking they started getting in touch with like my personal you know people in my personal life to try to like verify and I felt a little bit uncomfortable with that idea but at the same time like mostly I'm just like why are you trying so hard to pretend to be Latinx like it's I I don't I don't quite get it but um it's hard because like you know I feel like I relate to, I, you know, listening to you in the past and you haven't used the word imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm yeah. that's a thing that comes to mind when yep. I hear you talking about your yep. experience. And I've had that experience too in my life. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is because I didn't speak Spanish. A lot of it is because, you know, when I, when I kind of came out as queer, um, you know, my immediate community when I first came out was Latina because I came out as mm-hmm. a lesbian in high school. Mm-hmm. And then, but after that, the places where I was finding um, the things that I kind of needed and related to the most, which is around playing music and art and, you know, going, like I ended up hanging around with people more like who were academics or like white feminists is who I was mm-hmm. hanging out with a lot, um, mm-hmm. who I kind of came up with. That's who kind of brought me under their wing after I came out. I uh, worked at the feminist bookstore in Albuquerque and was part of the the, the music festival and things like that. And so m- most of my community was was white. And so, you know, my culture, like a lot of the music mm-hmm. I liked and right. like I just really kind of somehow just became separate in a way from my roots. Mm-hmm. I remember one time saying like, who's your who's your Latino community? And I was just like my family, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, and that made me, when I said that, I was like, whoa, that that's intense. Like, what's that about for me? Mm-hmm. I have since spent, you know, time and cultivation of my, you know, of creating a close knit, um, you know, Latina community mm-hmm. and, uh, and BIPOC community in general. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was, there was some kind of decolonizing I had to do internally, yeah. but mm-hmm. I had that, that sense of, I'm not, I would joke like, oh, I grew up white, you know, mm-hmm. or I'm not enough, you know, I'm not yeah. Latino enough. I'm not Chicano enough. I'm not whatever mm-hmm. enough. And, you know, so I get that kind of like feeling of like, 
you know, should I be in this space? Should mm -hmm. I be taking up the space? Should I be identifying the way that I do? And it's so upsetting to me when people who, uh, who aren't actually, who don't have this experience in any way, shape or form, mm -hmm. uh, co-opt it mm -hmm. so that they can get whatever access, you know, all that magical access we get, right. um, <laughs> that they can get the little tiny bits of, of resources that are available to us. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I mean, for me too, like part of like, it's very genuine that I'm, that I declare my Latina identity pretty openly on my social media and I do this podcast and all that kind of stuff. But also, I, I mean, not only is it something that where I'm much more comfortable owning this part of my identity. And so it is genuine to like put all that stuff on my profiles, but at the same time, it is also very protective against that questioning, against that imposter syndrome coming from an external source as opposed yeah. to just an internal source, uh, especially since, you know, you don't you don't see my Latinaness in my name. You don't hear it in my voice like that, like the the parts of it are very invisible. And I, I had a very assimilated experience and I still can navigate the world. Uh, very much being assimilated unless I declare. And so it's very important for me as part of like decolonizing to, uh, to be very open about it too. Cause otherwise that feels like, you know, erasing ancestors that should be, uh, uh that should be as prominent as how I'm read, you know, when mm -hmm. I'm walking down the street by yeah. whoever. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to circle back though, to, um, to the conversation about, uh, Latine versus like Latinx and how that works with with the language, because I think, you know, what you said is completely true about it. And I I, I think that maybe what we'll see, especially from like a publishing perspective, is that, you know, content that is published first in Spanish will you will use Latine. And that's that seems to be like it would have an easier time getting accepted by like style guides and things like that. Um, whereas this is actually something I my day job is in educational publishing. And so I, I'm like working internally on a lot of DEI stuff with some of my colleagues. And that includes like the right terms for different uh, different communities and groups of people. And so when it comes right now, kind of where I am when it comes when I'm thinking about this is I'm like, OK, Spanish first publications like use Latina because that that makes sense. But if it's a if it's a publication in English, then, you know, it's probably OK to use the Latinx term because that that can make sense to you or use Latina like it doesn't it's not necessarily exclusive. But I think especially for Spanish first content it, it, that can that can make some more sense. And then um but it, it is constantly evolving. And every time the conversation comes up, it's like it feels like there's some little like more nuance. And it's it's hard enough for anything about publishing or content development to, to keep up with anything, um, much less uh, something like this, where it's it's still an, an ongoing conversation. And there's such hostility on the Internet about it sometimes. And all that stuff. The the one thing, the one hot take that I have about Latinx, though, th this is the one I don't I don't say it a lot because people hate on the term enough. But um, note the pronunciation that I give for Latinx. Um, I don't say Latinx. I think that's kind of cringy sounding, and I think <laughs> that saying Latinx sort of proves the point of how like awkward it it, it is. Like 
you we say English speakers, people that don't know Spanish at all can still say Latino, Latina, right? When they see that. And so Latino, Latina, Latinx. It's just, I don't think it's that difficult. And I think saying it Latinx just kind of proves that it's not as difficult as some of the detractors want to make it out to be. And yet this is a battle that I've already completely lost because <laughs> people, people are saying Latinx and you know, that's, that's fine. Like, I'm not going to like come for anybody because of this, but it, <laughs> but it is a reason why I specifically say Latinx because Latinx. it does have a bit of a, a better flow. And again, you know, for anybody listening to this, that is maybe struggling with the term at all and how say, Oh, well, it's so awkward to say in English, like literally listen to me say it. It's, it's a little uh, bit weird the first couple of times, but like you do get into a, a flow uh, for it, I think. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely heard both uh, Latinx does feel kind of like, yeah, I don't know if it's like uh, emphasis on the Latin mm -hmm. <laughs> and this whole way that we're, oh, you're Latin, you know, no, right. <laughs> Latin. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah I, I, yeah, you know, I think there's ways, there's ways, it's made me think of totally kind of off topic, but there's ways that things are spoken that I'm like, why are you saying it that way? It's not that hard to say like, um, it's not that hard to say like Blanco, Texas, but people call it Blanco. Mm -hmm. It's not hard to say like out here we have um, in Marin, everybody calls it San Rafael. And I'm like, mm -hmm. where did the A go? Or where did, <laughs> where did, yeah, where did that A go? So it's mm -hmm. San Rafael, but like just ways that, that there's just these kind of subtle ways that language gets kind of anglicized. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it feels very um, confusing to me because it's not like it's mm -hmm. super difficult. Mm -hmm. to, like there's one thing if you can't roll your r's okay i get it yeah. but like you know you can't say you can't just put an emphasis in another you know syllable or add mm -hmm. the you know bring the letter in that's supposed to be there but mm -hmm. uh yeah it's it's interesting mm -hmm. yeah like when i when i hear I, this is something I, I try to like train out of myself too a little bit uh because i'll be talking about san juan in puerto rico and you know i used to be like san juan like no I, I can say san juan it's not it's not that hard <laughs> I got and that. for i mean for that part you know for that matter i might as well be like san antonio san andreas uh los los angeles <laughs> like what are, san diego like what are right? all the other all the other cities oh my gosh um, yeah i say like i say my dad's from mexico but i'm from new mexico right. i went to school at del norte high school but i lived off of paseo del norte like mm -hmm. this it's so funny it's just like well how's everybody <laughs> saying it well i guess that's just how we say it right yeah right <laughs> And then, and then you were talking about, you told the story about your name in Spanish class too. And that reminded me of an interesting conversation I saw on Twitter several months ago and, and one that I weighed in on about like the weirdness of choosing a Spanish name. And I was kind of reflecting back on my own experience with that. And I was like, on the one hand, I mean, it was fine. Like choosing a Spanish name is, is cool. It's something fun to do. But then on the other hand, I thought a little bit more about that. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm already Latina. Why? Like, but I had to choose a Spanish name. Like my name wasn't like enough or not enough. Like, but it's, it wasn't what was expected to be part of it. But I, like, so it was this weird, like, was that some subtle, like, you know, underneath mm. the surface, like type of erasure with that happens with like my specific intersectionalities. And it's just it's just fascinating to to think about. Like I 
I never, I mean, I never thought about that. This was like, I, I took five years of Spanish from like seventh grade through my junior year of high school. And I, I mean, I never, I never thought of it that way. Like people named Nicholas, they were like, oh, Nico or like whatever, like that, that mm-hmm. makes sense. But, but also like, what does the Spanish name mean? Because I would then go visit my literal family in Puerto Rico who all speak Spanish and they'd be like, Daylord. So like, why is, you know, yeah. and I'm like, so I was thinking about that when I saw people talking about how, because people were saying that, oh, it's really weird that that happens because I guess apparently in other countries, they don't like do that with like other with language mm. learning courses or mm. it was something mm-hmm. like that. And then a lot of people were talking about their experiences of it. And I was like, wait a second. Like I have a really weird sort of way of of like entering into that too. Like my name that I was given doesn't have its own Spanish translation. Mm-hmm. So therefore it's not like, because I think also like uh, Latinas kids who had typical Spanish names had teachers that were like, you know, you have to pick a different name. Yeah, And it's like, well, <laughs> what? So... Yeah, yeah, it feels like a, a, a United States thing because people who come here from other countries often have to anglicize from non non Anglo countries have to come here and anglicize their names, whether it be their last name or their first name. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, well, they, you know, they don't have to, but that's that's a really common thing, and it's really expected mm-hmm. to be able to get by better. So it's very interesting that in our language classes, our like foreign language classes, foreign language, mm-hmm. um, that we're also required to to uh, to do that with our names or, you know, mm-hmm. suggested, strongly mm-hmm. suggested. <laughs> yeah. So I'd love to get into your experiences with spirituality and religion and how that intersects with your identity. Cause I know you have a lot of richness to that, that I would love to hear about. Well, okay. So how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> It all started. So, you know, I was I was brought up Catholic mm-hmm. and uh, baptized and had my first Holy Communion and, um, you know, confession and all that, those sacraments that you have. And I was really into it. When I was a kid, um, my sister was in the chorus and it was like a really like it was all the cool teenagers that were in this choir at seven o'clock mass on Sunday nights. And I was there every Sunday night, just like so happy to to listen to the music and um, when I got into, I guess it was, uh, I guess in eighth grade, I started um, going to the, the youth group um, only because my friend's mom made her go. And so she made me go. And, you know, my family, like, even though we were Catholic and we did all the sacraments, we weren't like super religious in the sense that you know, we went to church every Sunday. We went to church on the holy days that we had to go, but we didn't really talk about it at home. Like we went to catechism, we did all the things we were supposed to do, but we never really talked about it. And it was never really like central outside of the the places we went that we were supposed to go. And so <clears throat> I got really involved through the, in the church outside of my family. Um, and so, you know, I started going to the youth group with my friend and I got really into it. And I, I she volunteered me because I played music. Um, they were looking for a new musician for the weekends of Christian living. And she was like pointing at me and I was like, Oh, I don't, I don't you know. I was like really not used to playing just by myself and my, you know, in front of people. But um, so, yeah. So the, one of the college uh, youth group students or youth group uh, participants taught me the songs and practiced with me. And so I started leading the music on the weekends. Like I was really into, it. I was really involved. 
And uh, that was, you know, eighth grade, ninth grade, and then um, ninth grade, the end of ninth grade in high school, I came out as a, then as a lesbian and uh, was, you know, started to have some confusion around, well, what does that mean? What does that mean for my, my religion? Like, I really love God and I love the church and, you know, and I grew up kind of thinking that if you sinned really badly, you'd go to hell and grew up really liking Jesus. Like I used to have like daydreams that he, I was a latchkey kid. So I'd always dream that he came over and we play checkers together and hang out and from watch Tom and Jerry or whatever. And um, so like I had a strong, <laughs> strong relationship, right. To the church, to God, and then coming out, understanding that like being gay is, is a sin um, was really confusing for me. And um, so <clears throat> I, uh, I kind of just continued on, stayed quiet about it. I had a couple of friends that knew. And then I think my 10th grade year, I, I had come out to my, my parents early my sophomore year of high school. And I've never seen my mom be so religious. Remember how I said my family wasn't mm-hmm. religious when I came mm-hmm. out? Suddenly I was like hearing her talking about God and sin and all that. I was just like, mm-hmm. whoa, I'd never hear you talk like this. But uh, so, you know, I decided at a point then to come out to my deacon at, at, uh, who, who led the youth group. And he was a really cool guy and got along great with the youth and knew how to relate to us. And uh, so I um, I came out to him. I told him I was gay. And he said, well, you know, it's probably just a phase. I'm sure it's just a phase. And so around that time, they were talking to us. The older college students were having like, conversations with us about sexuality. And, um, you know, homosexuality came up a lot. And... and uh, you know, the, the answer was like, well, it's not a sin to be gay, but it's a sin to act on it. Mm-hmm. Because if you act on it, if you have sex, you're having premarital sex. You're, you're having sex outside of marriage. And because you can't get married if you're gay, then there's no way you can actually have sex that's not a sin. And that's how was, that, was, that was kind of the way, one of the ways they were explaining it mm-hmm. to not, I guess they did, you know, it's very interesting. I guess it was so that they wouldn't sound super bigoted because... I'm sure all of them had queer cousins or siblings because for some reason in Albuquerque, it was and somebody I knew used to joke and say it was in something in the holy water that, you know, <laughs> there was, there were a lot of us, there were a lot of LGBTQ. <laughs> well, let's say mostly that we know of like lesbian and gays. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was, it was hard to hear that because, you know, here I was all excited about having come out and like I was in, into this really vibrant community. And also hearing these messages of like, I can't actually fully be who I am or else I'm sinning. And then I finally decided I was going to go to confession about it. And that was really scary for me because confession, I always did face to face from the first time I ever confessed as a little kid on, like I would just go in and hang out with the priest and talk to them. Like it was really comfortable. It was really just like, Hey, Father Philip, confession time. Great. Here's, and we would have a really like wonderful talk. And when it was time for me to come out, as gay to the priest, I couldn't do it face to face. And so um, I went behind the screen and it was one of the older priests that I had never actually talked with before. And I told him I was gay. I said, well, I'm, I'm a homosexual. And, and he said, uh, well, my son, now mind you, I, I did not identify as a boy at the time. I was still girl identified. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't quite understand about being trans yet. That came later. And so that really, you know, but I was always called a boy my whole life. And it was very Mm -hmm. confusing and frustrating for me to just be kind of misgendered. 
Um, this is a different story for every trans people. I just want to, for all trans people, mm -hmm. I want to say that some trans mm -hmm. people who are trans masculine like me will say, I've always been a boy, even when I didn't know it, looking back, you know, or I always knew I was, but no one would acknowledge it. So I just want to be very clear that this is my story. Mm -hmm. um, very particular to me. I did identify as a girl and I did identify as a lesbian and as a dyke. That was the language I used for myself. Mm -hmm. So when the priest said, well, my son, a lot of boys your age have these feelings. It's a phase, blah, blah, blah. I just kind of tuned out and just, I, I think I left my body at that moment. Mm -hmm. It was very scary to be in there telling him that. And then to be what at that time was misgendering me mm -hmm. um, was just like, it just kind of took me out. It was, I was kind of done at that point. Something broke. And so, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I don't fault the priest for misgendering me um, necessarily, you know, but I do think it's interesting that the first thing his mind went to when I said I'm, I'm gay or I'm homosexual was that that must be a boy. Hmm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I kind of just shut down in a way to the church uh, at the time. And, but around that time, somebody who I was um, had a big crush on who we had kind of dated and, didn't work out, but I was still like madly in love with her. Mm -hmm. She was part of uh, Young Life. Do you know what Young Life is? Yes, I do. Yeah, so, <laughs> so Young Life is a group of, the best way I can describe it is high school age uh, youth who um, are a Christian youth group, but also like kind of proselytize at high schools. At least mm -hmm. they did back then. They'd always kind of try to get other kids involved in uh, I don't know how they got away. There were kids that didn't go to the school that were a little older that would come to our school and try to get us to go to Young Life and ask us if we believed in Jesus and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but anyway, she was a part of Young Life. And I, I was just always like, okay, you go do that. But then at some point she told me, you know, I, I think that um, I'm going to stop being gay. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, what? What are you talking about? And she just said, I don't think Jesus wants me to act on this. Like, you know, I, I don't know that I'm going to stop being gay. I can't stop my feelings, but I'm not going to act on it anymore. Mm -hmm. So I was like kind of devastated when she told me that because I was just like all in love with her. And, um, but also like I was already kind of questioning the Catholic church and what does this mean? What does it mean to be gay? And so I decided to go to church with her and then I decided I wasn't going to be gay. And that lasted about... I don't know, four months, maybe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I went to my first women's music festival and it was all over with. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, I was like, oh yeah, okay. I'm a born again lesbian. Got it. <laughs> and, <laughs> but, you know, there, and then there, there, but I had kind of continued connections, uh, touch points with, with Christianity. I had a friend invite me to go to her church. It was a Calvary chapel in, in uh, Albuquerque. It's very Christian, very conservative. And in this one service I was in, they were, sl they slammed everyone I cared about. Like they were going off on Catholics, calling them heathens, like, just like, just, it was really upsetting to me. I was, I was left just being so upset. And my friend was like, I'm so glad you came. And I was like, mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm crying. I'm angry. She's like, it's okay. I'm still glad you came. And I was just like, oh, okay. So you don't actually care about me. Like mm -hmm. you just want to get more people in the door. And so like just oh, more and more, I started just kind of getting jaded about religion. I had friends, you know, trying to explain to me, well, if you don't, if you're not saved and if you don't, choose Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're going to go to hell. And I, at some point I was just like, well, then I want nothing to do with him. I want nothing to do with a God that would send me to hell for not believing in him. 
because God's supposed to be better than me. And I would never condemn anyone to hell, no matter what they do to me, whether they believe in me or not, or whatever, I would not do that. If I have the capacity for that, how does God not have the capacity for that? And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I just got real sour (laughs) about Mm -hmm. it all, about organized religion. Mm -hmm. And I I just, I was done with it. And still my whole life, though, I'm a very spiritually inclined person. I like being in groups who who do work together. Um, I like ritual. You know, I I like ceremony. And, you know, I I, I feel like I need to, I've always felt like I need to find something. And eventually... I ended up in my late 20s connecting with a group of um, people who were doing work with uh, Miguel Ruiz, who wrote The Four Agreements, um, Toltec uh, Wisdom. And I did that for like a good solid eight years. But the very interesting thing is that most of it was white. Hmm. Um, Most of Miguel's uh, apprentices were white. So my teacher was white. You know, it was a little, you know, I was like, well, it's very interesting that it's white woman's teaching me things that come from, you know, where I'm from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I knew that was weird, but the knowledge was so important for me to kind of learn and understand. And, you know, over time, I, I you know, after about eight years of really intensive, intensive work with Miguel himself and all of um, his his apprentices and uh, the whole community, I I needed to step away because I it, it just was too white. It was so white. Mm-hmm. Um, and so colonizing in a lot of ways and so individualistic it was so about the individual kind of enlightenment Mm -hmm. that it just I started to really feel like um there there was just a lot missing that I needed I needed I started to then kind of meet community that were really about each other and really about the good of the community and the good of humanity and it was around the time I I uh, started to transition as well um and that was in my early 30s and then started to get real connected to BIPOC community really started to learn from I worked at TGI Justice uh Transgender Gender Variant Intersex Justice Project and um they work with trans folks in prison and jails and mostly with trans women of color mostly black trans women and that's where I really started to learn about like collective liberation Mm -hmm. and that became my spirituality in a sense like I was like, oh, these are the people I have faith in. When people ask me where, where my faith is, it is in people. It is in people who, um, under the worst of circumstances, are giving everything they can so that we can all be free together um, and take care of each other and make sure that no one's left behind. And um, yeah, I think that like that ends up kind of, when I think about what is my spirituality, that's it, you know, these days. And it has been for a while. And I still connect to um, old rituals. Like I still have saints up on my wall because my mom mm-hmm. told me to how to pray to St. Anthony if you lose something. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Virgen de Guadalupe is hanging on my door. And, like, you know, there's, there's I put up altars and I still like, I have a crucifix hanging that mm-hmm. was um, from when my mom died. And when my mom was dying, I was out praying a rosary. Because mm-hmm. that was her belief. And so I mm-hmm. feel like, I feel very fluid, I guess, in a lot of ways. It's like, okay, this is what you believe and this is what your afterlife is. I'm going to believe that with you. But mm-hmm. that's not for me. And so like trying to learn how to hold a lot of things. And that's something I guess I've been practiced at, you know, standing between mm-hmm. worlds right. in a lot of ways as like a trans person or gender non-binary person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I just talked a whole lot. Oh, <laughs> so that's less fine. like a conversation, but that's yeah, it's fine. just like I just go on and on about this. Yeah, no, no, that's that's fine. I was uh, I always like to quietly take notes as I as I listen and then circle back on a couple of things and you know you were talking about your your this girl that you had a crush on who was like the leader of young life and I mean I grew up I was formed very much by white contemporary evangelical culture so like I know what young life is okay and uh and you were talking about this girl that you had a crush on and she's like so her faith is so strong. Right. And she's like, I don't, Jesus doesn't want to be gay. And I, I immediately, I, I have sort of a slightly similar story in that I, I went to a Christian college and I didn't realize I was gay until like the summer before my senior year. So I had most of my college career just being really repressed. But then that senior year, I, had I had my my first of like two straight girl crushes in a row which is just a road to sadness I do not (laughs) recommend ever having crushes on straight girls um but I remember like one I was really like her her good friend and uh we clicked right away and I remember at one point we're like taking this really long walk around campus and um she's like she she turned to me at one point and she said like very very seriously She's like, can you pray for me that I won't fall in love or get into a relationship this year? Because I really just need to focus on school and like, it, like the, in the very serious way that like young Christian kids are about having accountability partners and like praying with each other, like all that stuff. <laughs> I'm like on the receiving <laughs> end of this and I'm like, I'm like, I'm a good Christian girl. So like, yes, absolutely. Because that is like what you need. But also I'm dying on the inside. Right. <laughs> and I remember like, I don't know if it was after that experience or or an experience I had the next semester where I just had this very like sad, but also profound realization that um, to, to quote, like love these people that I am interested in that can't or won't you know, return my feelings, I have to, if I'm going to love them as the image of God, right, I have to will their happiness, whether or not it involves me. And most of the time it doesn't, which is the sad part. But, but that is something that is sort of like a, like a realization that I had and and something that I, on the one hand, I'm kind of forced to experience that over and over as a pattern. But on the other hand, I think that's also a good way to to sort of view this type of stuff that it is to try to think about like the the happiness and the the betterness of the other person. And it might not involve you being in their life or not being in their life the specific way that you want to be in their life. Um, and it's a really like, it's a really hard thing to, to deal with. And I mean, we could talk to about like compulsive heterosexuality and cause I mean, I, I have, I have my suspicions about like, you know, if circumstances were different and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, when somebody is expressing a a need um to to bulldoze over that with like but i want and but i'm different and those those types of things um 
usually not a good look. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And, it, it's not, you know, and at the same time, like it's not right. Like respecting mm-hmm. that is so important. Yeah. And thinking about like that compulsive heterosexuality you're talking about, mm-hmm. t- thinking about how heterosexuality is crammed down our throats. Mm-hmm. Like, Really, like people say, like, oh, the homosexuality, you all have to flaunt it and you have to do. And it's like, no, it's actually, that's such gaslighting because the reality is the expectation to be heterosexuality is just so inherent and so Mm -hmm. insidious that Mm -hmm. we will get completely ostracized and rejected. People will get pushed out of their churches, of their Mm -hmm. spiritual communities if they're Mm -hmm. not heterosexual. So who's cramming Mm -hmm. what down whose throat? And like, I really get like on an individual level, respecting that and Mm -hmm. really wanting a person to get what they need. But Mm -hmm. on a systemic level, I'm just like, you know what? Yeah. Yeah. For real. For real. Yeah. Let's just be real about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially at a, at a Christian college where like we had visitation rules for the dorm halls so like guys couldn't be on girls halls after certain times of the day and and things like that and man (laughs) man there there are stories i mean anybody who went to a christian school or who goes to one now because not much has changed like knows exactly what all this is about and then the and you were talking about before too like the like that uh proselytizing through through young life like the the evangelical, the white evangelical culture specifically, the way that it, um, that it will like degrade Catholicism. Um, I remember I was at a youth retreat when I, sometime in high school and I don't remember how it came up, but I was, we were walking back to my like cabin that my group was staying in or whatever. And maybe one of the services was about baptism or like people were like getting baptized or whatever. And we're having a conversation about that. And I was like, I was like, oh yeah, I was, I was baptized when I was a baby. Cause I was, when I was a small child, I was baptized Catholic mm-hmm. and, um, and that Catholicism comes from my Latina side of my family. My abuela was so deeply Catholic, like to the point where I think that a big reason why I feel like I resonate so deeply with traditional Christian aesthetics, like it feels like a extremely deep part of my soul, like a, like a, maybe even farther back uh, than my abuela in terms of like I don't know, like ancestors, like vibing with, 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 you know, that kind of stuff, because it just, it's sort of like inexplicable sometimes how, mm-hmm. uh, how deep that, that seems to go. And Abuela was so like very Catholic, but, um, you know, I remember being in this youth group situation and I was talking about like, yeah, I was baptized when I was, when I was a baby and this youth leader was like, no, that doesn't count because you were a baby and you didn't make the choice for yourself. And, you know, at that time I was like, oh, wow, that makes sense. Mm. But it also was like, I mean, man, and especially with my specific context, not only did it, is it just invalidating to like, you know, Catholic, but like it it was also yet another thing that erased, you know, my Latina-ness and it served to be another like thing that invalidated that part of, of myself. And, you know, I had youth leaders that would talk about like, oh, well, the Catholics have these extra books in in the Bible and they're not like, and 
but then you you I mean you look at the history of Christianity and the Catholics came first. I mean, Eastern Orthodox came like there was that first there was that schism, but then like we didn't get Protestantism for another few hundred years. So mm. you know, it's just so sometimes they're so like they they like claim tradition, but they are so ahistorical in yeah. their approach to to theology and to how the Bible works and how it should be read and its role in, in worship and all these different things. And I'm like, like I didn't start learning about um, like the names for different creeds and all this kind of stuff until I went to my Christian college and had to take like academic Bible and theology courses that mm. like taught me this history and these different things because the church that I spent middle school and high school and was like, Oh, we're, you know, we're a contemporary and we're not like that church. And so we don't do the, these things. And I'm like, well, you're going to detach yourself from this old tradition. You're going to claim that, you know, you're, you're separating yourself from that, but your theology sucks. Mm. And so I would much rather, and I much prefer a high church aesthetic you know, give me, give me your vestments and your like, you know, like your uh, different colors for each of the seasons and your candles and your stained glass and all that stuff with your progressive, inclusive and queer affirming theology, which is what I find in my current church that I go to mm. and in, in many churches in the UCC. Like, give me that over, you know, PowerPoint slides and, and a rock band. That is yeah. that is like, oh, see, we are with the times. We are with the times, but your theology is still racist and still homophobic and still transphobic. Like you haven't actually done the work in the substance. You've done the work in the wrapping. Um, mm -hmm. And and that's that's like my that's my TED talk about that. But yeah, <laughs> I have a lot of feelings. <laughs> I have a lot of feelings about that, man. <laughs> yeah, there. I mean, there is so much uh, hypocrisy in most organized religion, really. Um, mm -hmm. that it's, it's just like, it's very frustrating because the essence gets lost. The, the real teachings get lost mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm by no means, uh, a theology expert, but like just anyone who's been a part of a religious group and has critical thinking can begin to see that, um, mm -hmm. and see the ways that, yeah, just the hypocrisy that happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, was being a little bit, you know, exaggerating, dramatic, using rhetorical devices and, and things like that. Of course, you can have a, you know, a traditionally aesthetic church with bad theology and you can have a oh, yeah. contemporary style church that has done the work in, in theology. Like it's not, you know, it's not quite like that, even though in my personal church experience, that is the the difference. You know, what yeah. I what I found, the thing that on the surface seemed to be relevant and relatable actually had harmful theology versus the thing that seems old and outdated on the surface because of how it how it appears has theology that's actually alive and and mm -hmm. and living and useful for myself and and for others like me yeah. um and i mean one thing i love about the catholic church too is the the ceremony and the 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 indigeneity that has like been maintained like so many cultures have kept their um their native cultures their native ceremonies and brought them into catholic church like the saints and a lot of mm -hmm. the just the different ways that um that the art is and you know i think about like Virginia Guadalupe and how she is brown and she's an indigenous and mm -hmm. um just that there's these ways that cultures are going to keep 
pieces of their cultures in there. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and I think that a lot of the, the, I see like certain kinds of Christianity just wipe that out. Like I see like a certain, like mm-hmm. I've watched like Pentecostal um, type churches, like just like wipe out all of that deep, deep culture mm-hmm. that, um, that the, that really are the indigenous parts of our cultures get just mm-hmm. lost. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've seen full on Mexican Pentecostal churches, but they, they're, they feel like such a white model of, mm. um, mm-hmm. of doing things that, yeah, it's just it's call it's just colonized uh, religion. It's colonial mm-hmm. religion, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it makes it especially challenging and interesting to try to answer this question of what does a Latinx church look like? What does Latinx uh. Christian worship look like? Which is a question that you know I'll raise with this podcast with a lot of the work that Encuentros Latinx does in the UCC specifically, and also more broadly, the, um, the Colectivo uh, de UCC Latinx Ministries, also like the broader umbrella organization of all the Latinx stuff happening in the denomination. And it, it's a question that I ask all the time. And at first I was asking that question, um, thinking that maybe there was sort of a, a simple answer in that, cause I grew up so assimilated into whiteness that, you know, it's like, Oh, they're, they're clearly, you know, must be uh, churches and worship settings that are, you know, would be called Latinx that I just need to uh, need to find and and kind of see what what they're like. But the more that I get into this work, uh, the more that I find that um, people are still trying to figure that out, Mm -hmm. especially in the UCC, which is like so predominantly white. And most of the Latinx people are sort of spread apart where a lot of us maybe were the only one in our congregation. And so there's, there is this like disconnection from the community that Encuentros Latinx and uh, Colectivo are trying to resolve and trying to um, find a place to gather all of that. Um, And so on the one hand, it's like, I feel a little bit better that there isn't some answer that I've just been missing out on the whole time because that kind of tells my imposter syndrome to like calm down and, and go away. Uh, but on the other hand, it, it just makes it such, uh, such a, a challenge because, you know, we, we want to say like, Oh, this is how a church can be more inclusive and welcoming of Latinx people specifically. And like, what does that even look like? Because you can't necessarily say that it's bilingual services when not every one of us speaks Spanish. Um, you know, you can't pinpoint a certain music style because, um, like, it it's just it's just such a um, I don't know. It's just it's hard to grasp. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's it's you know, it's, I think about like um, just being in the United States or being really. Christianity has, you know, I, I get like, we, we need the places where we need to, we need our, our spaces. We need our spaces where we can practice our beliefs, where we can um, practice our spirituality, our relationships with God, spirit, creator. And in this colonized world, that's, that's what we've been given, right? Like we've Mm -hmm. been given Christianity. Um, and you know, there's a lot of other things we've been given as well, but it's it's big. Mm-hmm. It's it's in there. Like it's it's a big one, 
And that's what some of us grew up with. That's what some of us really resonate with. That is it. That's, that's the Mm -hmm. thing. And so it's impossible to not be in a kind of colonized whitewashed Christianity because Mm -hmm. that is what the dominant um, religion is. It's, it's no matter how it started, it is white. Mm -hmm. You know, it has been um, used as a weapon by white people. It has been used to, um, as it's been used as a tool of genocide by by European people, and mm-hmm. so you know, I don't ever fault people for like, cause like you know, I you know, I some, sometimes it's just like I get like, oh, you know, what are the the indigenous spiritualities mm-hmm. and practices have been lost, mm-hmm. or like I see you know, right. brown people, I see native people practicing Christianity, and I'm like, oh no, I know what that feels like, I really was into Christianity and it was all these other barriers that took me out of it. Right. Mm-hmm. It was all of the, the in, in inevitable ways that it is brought here in whiteness mm-hmm. that took me out of it. And that there are people who are like, no, but that's not going to take me out of it. I'm going to find other people like me. I'm going to find spaces where I can practice and where I can believe and where I can pray with other people. And that's mm-hmm. really important. And mm-hmm. You know, I think that there's no, like, I think those are things we have to create. Like, yeah. I see you creating it, right? With Encuentros mm-hmm. Latinx and with the work you're doing, like, you're creating it. And, like, there is no simple answer, right? right. And and there are churches that are very Latinx inclusive, but mm-hmm. they're probably very conservative. Maybe they're very conservative, right? right? Like, you're trying to find, right. like, okay, who are my progressive, queer, trans, mm-hmm. um, you know, brown people who are are, are practicing um, who I can practice with. Mm-hmm. And like, I think that's something that we have to deal with a lot, of, a lot in this country is just having mm-hmm. to recreate our communities. Every, mm-hmm. just about every group I've been involved with in some way or another, I've had to figure out a way to fit in or mm-hmm. to help create something that feels more like what I want to do. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. there's always these subsets. Like I do, I started doing improv this year and it's mm-hmm. really fun. It's like giving me life and it's, you know, to, get ready for a film that I'm working on. And there's an occasional BIPOC improv group that meets. And I'm like, that's, that's my, that's where I want to be. I want to squeeze into mm-hmm. that one little spot that meets once a month, sometimes online. And, you know, it's so important for me to find people with, there's always just that I need to find the people that have the same kind of footprint that I have or similar experiences so that I can do this in a more uh, natural way. And so that I can do this in a way where I can fully bring myself to it. And mm-hmm. I think we're just constantly doing that, right? Just in, mm-hmm. I've had to do that in queer space. I've had to do that, like, you know, where are my BIPOC people in queer space? And where mm-hmm. are my queer people in this space? And right. It's, it's, a, it's a constant uh, <laughs> endeavor, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of creation, uh, you yourself are such a creative person. There's lots of things that you do make. And one of the, again, one of the reasons why I'm so happy to finally have you on the show so that people can know what you do outside of simply editing the the podcast. So can you tell us just some of the different things that you make in this world? <laughs> sure. Um, well, I just do, you know, I've been somehow making art my whole life. Um, I mentioned I was, I mentioned I was the, um, the leader of the, the the music leader of the youth group uh, weekend of Christian livings when I was in high school. So I've been playing music even before that. Like I've, since I was a kid, I've been writing songs. 
I learned how to play guitar in the sixth grade and um, have just been singing and writing and playing music my whole life. I've been performing my whole life. And that was always kind of the main thing was music. But uh, over time, I started doing things like producing shows. I started doing some performance art. Um, I uh, have done acting and just a lot of different things because I'm always just like, ooh, ooh, this is happening. Oh, performance opportunity. I've always felt like I had to have my hands in it somehow. And then somehow, uh, when I turned, right around the time I turned 40, I got into filmmaking. That was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just started, it started because I wanted to make a music video for one of my songs. But I was really interested in editing because I'd been doing some minor editing for a job I was doing. And so I was like, well, I really want to edit. And so I I, were, I went to QuackMap, which is a Queer Women of Color Media Arts Project. But they are open to all trans folks. And actually, mm-hmm. they've actually opened to all uh, BIPOC queer folks. Mm-hmm. And so it's, uh, it's a place where you can go and, and learn how to make film. And I went to one of their, one of their intensive courses and I made my music video through the course and really just like, I was happy with how it turned out. I hired someone to film. I did crowdsource fundraising, which I've been doing since I was probably like 20 years old for music. And, you know, out, before the internet, we were just like, here, buy my two song tape so that I can make a 10 song CD, you know, and <laughs> always finding ways to hustle. But um, so yeah, I hustled money and bought, I hired a camera person and a crew and I edited the film and I realized I was like, yes, editing is what I love. I love to edit. So I started trying to pursue a career in editing and that's mostly what I'm doing now, but I've also made a couple of films. Well, I've made, uh, co-produced a film and I directed my first uh, feature documentary that came out in 2019 and that's uh it's called the whistle and it's about lesbian youth culture in albuquerque new mexico in the 70s mm-hmm. and 80s you've heard me talk about that but mm-hmm. i went back and actually interviewed a lot of folks who were around at that time we had a whistle i didn't mention this earlier we had a whistle that we used to call each other's attention that we mm-hmm. had to that we actually had to learn it was a light rite of pra- pa- passage to learn this whistle and so if i was like walking down the street and I saw in 1980, let's say, and I saw another person walking down the street that had a mullet like I did. Mm-hmm. And I was like, she's family. I would whistle like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she might think it's her friends and she'd turn around and give a little nod. She'd give a little nod and that we'd continue right. on. Or, you know, <laughs> if I was walking along and I heard the whistle, I might turn around mm-hmm. and think, oh, it's my friends because it's how we'd get each other's attention. And sometimes mm-hmm. there'd be a whole other group of lesbians like teenage lesbians give me the nod I get kind of shy but it was just this way of like finding each other and Mm -hmm. um identifying each other and it was cool because not everybody heard it it's so high pitched that people Mm -hmm. start listening for it but when you're when you know the sound anytime you hear it you're like who's whistling and so Mm -hmm. anyway that was kind of the that's kind of the hook of the movie it's called the Mm -hmm. whistle but it's it's a lot about uh about that culture that was happening at that time and who brought the whistle and how it came to be and how that whole community kind of found each other and spent time together supporting each other. There's a whole section where I, you'll hear a repeat of a story I told about going to confession. There, I think four or five of us end up talking about our experiences in the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's just a lot of different themes that come up throughout the movie that people talk about having experience at that time. And it was mm-hmm. very u- unique um, in Albuquerque at that. Like, it was just a very unique moment. It was not happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't even happening outside of that moment. Like, even after, like, after the 80s, it kind of fizzled. Like, there just wasn't as tight a community as it, of mm-hmm. youth anyway. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's that's a film I made. Uh, it's an hour long documentary, and uh, now I'm working on my first feature narrative and um, first fiction. And it's going to be a mockumentary. Um, mm-hmm. Feels like a natural progression coming out of documentary <laughs> filmmaking, and uh, it's uh, it's kind of a sequel to the whistle. It's it's me going back to Roswell to mm-hmm. um, come out to my family as trans, but mm-hmm. in truth, they already know I'm trans. And they mm-hmm. don't care. But in the right. story, I'm going out to Roswell and I'm filming it. I think it's very important to film my family's responses, and I'm going out with my partner, who's also a filmmaker. And um, along the way, my partner starts talking about the the aliens and the UFO crash landing in Roswell, mm-hmm. and it ends up affecting where the story goes. It ends up <laughs> being about something entirely <laughs> what I wanted to go out there and film. I want to go film mm-hmm. my coming out. Turns out we're going to follow some UFO story out in Roswell. So that's the, <laughs> the next project I'm working on and oh, my man. first uh, fiction narrative project. That that sounds so, so awesome. And I mean, what a great pitch for something to look forward to. So I want to make sure that people listening know where they can follow you to to keep up with this and, and you know, maybe see it once it comes out. So drop your social media website, whatever it is that people can can follow you on. For sure. Yeah. Um, so storm floodis with the Z dot com storm dot com. You can find pretty much everything there. Uh, but if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Storm Miguel. Um, that's two M's, S-T-O-R-M-M-I-G-U-E-L. And same with Instagram, at Storm Miguel. And I'll be posting about I have Roswell sites up, but they're just kind of holding places right now because I haven't really – we're in develop. – I'm in development, but I just wanted to mm-hmm. hold those. And the film's going to be called Welcome to Roswell. Very, very cool. And so – one thing that I love to do on this podcast when I have musicians, writers, artists of any kind is I, I love to have a space at the end of the episode for them to share a piece of their work. And in this case, I have invited you to, you're the editor, so you splice on uh, whatever uh, clip from any of your work that you would like to share with us. And so give us a, a brief introduction of what you'll be sharing and then you know we'll go ahead and and wrap things up okay so i'm going to share an excerpt or a scene from the whistle so the whistle like i said it's about more than just the whistle there's a whole section where we're talking about codes and words that we use to kind of like use be able to talk about being gay without actually having to talk about it and um there's a section called wrecked and it's uh people talking about what the word wrecked meant. We used to use the mm-hmm. word wrecked. And I'm not mm-hmm. going to say more because uh, mm-hmm. you'll find out now what the word wrecked meant. It's, I'll start. It starts with a poem. So uh, one of the participants, Gloria, happened to have a letter or a poem that a friend of hers wrote. And this was in the early 80s when she came out to her in high school. It might have been the late 70s. And so we had her read the poem out loud and we animated um, we animated the poem being written. Mm. And so it starts with the poem that Gloria's friend wrote, and then it goes into talking about Wrecked. This is the poem that my friend Anna wrote when, after I told her I was gay. And this was, of course, after she got over the initial shock of it. And so she wrote this. Do you want me to read it? Okay. Gay Glor. There's a girl, her name is Glor. 
I want to, to understand more. She kept it hidden and hidden good. When she told me, I just stood. I do understand quite a bit, but I need ask more or I'll have a fit. It was hard for her to say a lot of things for she is gay. I don't really care, this is a free land, for she's my friend, so I'll lend a hand. I like her for what she is, not what she does, so if I care for her, that's just cause. By the locker, I can't snap, for everyone is in a big wrap. Tears are now flowing a bit, but not in a wrong way, for sure they're coming down, but not because you're gay. It is really weird in every which ways, for all of them call it, wrecked for days. Being wrecked to me growing up was in high school, your first kiss. Who was the first girl you kissed? Who was the first girl you were with? So it was formed as a question, well, who wrecked you? That's the word that we used to use when we would talk about when we kissed our first girl. So that meant that we were wrecked. So when were you wrecked? It was part of our secret code. It was part of the language that, that we used in order to, gosh, I guess it was to protect ourselves. God, I haven't used that word in years. But I think back then, I mean, the biggest question was who wrecked you or, you know, how, what, what were the circumstances? How were you wrecked or um, how did you feel about that? Who wrecked you again? Uh, it was Rhonda. That was my first. Who was yours? Molly. Oh, that's right. Yes, same as me. God damn. <laughs> Molly wrecked a lot of girls. Yes. Yes, that would be a very valid point. Totally own it. Yes. One of her sentences would always be, oh, are you Molly's sister? And Steph would say, do you like her? And if they said yes, then said, yeah, I'm her sister. It appears I wrecked a number of girls in high school, so therefore Steph would ask the cautionary question of whether or not. So I wasn't lying. <laughs> but you know, God bless her record, I got yeah. Storm Miguel, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing yourself with us today. Thank you so much, Taylor. This was so much fun. It's so cool. I get to edit. Now I get to be in it. Then I get to yes. edit that. It's just like fully yes. immersed experience. <laughs> I'm digging it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. On behalf of Encuentros Latinx, we hope you'll join us on our next Encuentro.